Kia ora and welcome to RNZ's Insight Programme. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, waterproofing New Zealand cities. A wet winter has just passed in New Zealand, and along with the devastation of cyclones that have ripped through the Caribbean, it's a pressing reminder of the impact of the changing climate. But what can be done to help our towns and cities cope with the huge deluges that cause flooding, slips and damage homes and infrastructure? From emotions and well-being to urban design, resilience is the current buzzword urging a change from helplessness to action. And when it comes to climate change and making our cities into places that can spring back from the worst, Henk Ovink, the Netherlands' special envoy for international water affairs, is a heavy user of the word. There is no question to escape. Making our cities resilient is a necessity, not a luxury. I'm Teresa Cowie, and this insight explores what needs to change as New Zealand's towns and cities develop to make sure they can stand up to the weather changes that appear to be already upon us. Hurricane Irma, the most powerful Atlantic storm in a decade, rips through a glass building. In September, it left a trail of destruction in the Caribbean and southeast of the United States, killing 49 people and causing havoc in the lives of more than one million people living in its path. Henk Ovink says worldwide this is the new normal, and we have to find ways to live with it. With 60% of his home country flood-prone, he knows a thing or two about how to keep land a little less waterlogged than it would otherwise be. And as climate change brings more extreme weather, he's trying to convince other nations they need his country's expertise. People now say we don't need to prepare because the event was so extreme. Well, they better prepare because this is, you know, the, the, the extremes are getting more extreme. This is our reality and our future. We better accept it. Uh, so, but all over the world, that is still a hard sell. Water management expertise is now a multi-billion dollar industry for the small European kingdom. And when he was called on by the Obama administration to help in the wake of Hurricane Sandy, he brought a healthy dose of reality to those wanting to simply rebuild without confronting a future in the era of climate change. His philosophy? Stop trying to shut the water out and find ways to let it in. Welcome to Rotterdam. A young, dynamic, international city with an impressive skyline and an ever more impressive port. In the Dutch city of Rotterdam, there's little choice but to go with the flow, be innovative and adapt. Despite the huge challenge of having 80% of its land below sea level, the city, which is home to Europe's largest port, aims to be 100% climate-proof by 2025. Henk Ovink says underground car parks, dugout sports fields and widened waterways are used to catch heavy rains and can be used again after they drain out. In Rotterdam, as in many cities, water is a challenge with extreme rain events, so making the city more water resilient. Um, and, and in regards to climate change and heat effect, we also have to green our cities. And making that combination, water is doing a green roof program, and the green roofs hold the water and store it. They're building out their canals, because, you know, all of our cities have canals, and the embankment, if you widen the embankments, then 
when there's a lot of water, then the embankments might flood, holding more water, but then the city doesn't flood. They build water squares, so fantastic squares that hold water when there's rain events. Uh, but when there's no rain uh, and no water, great public spaces. And a parking garage, when it was built, uh, then you have to dig a deep hole. And we said, okay, when the hole is so deep, let's use the extra space also for water storage. So just being creating in anything you uh, build up uh, the moment you start those investments. He's encouraging cities starting to see the effects of climate change to find innovative ways to live with the water. Here in New Zealand, councils across the country are united in the idea that water management is the single biggest issue they face. Urban land only covers about 1% of New Zealand, but 87% of New Zealanders live in our cities, and the pressure's on to house them, especially in Auckland. Recent planning rule changes in Auckland and a building boom mean there'll be more and more houses built on less and less land. But more housing brings more hard surfaces that don't soak up rain and have the potential to overload stormwater systems. That, combined with what seems to be increasingly wild weather, means councils are having to take extra measures to avoid flooding. Claudia Halberg from Auckland Council's Waiora strategy team says many parts of Auckland are already vulnerable to flooding. For Auckland, we have got 16,000 buildings which are prone to flooding. And this equates to around 50,000 people who are living in these houses. In March, flooding and slips caused by heavy downpours brought damage and disruption to many areas of Auckland. And the Ministry for the Environment's climate change projections suggest things may get worse. It predicts more flooding of the city's streets as stormwater systems fail to cope with heavy rainfall. And with more heavy rainfall comes increased water contamination as runoff speeds up erosion and washes sediments into waterways. Chemicals washing off roads and from roofing and cladding also add to the toxic mix of contaminants making its way into rivers, streams, estuaries and harbours. But with a fast-growing population and a building boom underway, some developments in Auckland are in the lucky position of being able to start from scratch when it comes to building a resilient city. At Long Bay, a 2,000-home subdivision 25 kilometres north of Auckland, the developers are already ahead of the game. Stephen Martin is the general manager of land development for Todd Property. That's the Awaruku stream catchment, which is the south side of our development. Literally where we are going to drive to, just up to our right here, is a ridge line, so you can see that all water on, on this or the southern side would fall back to that catchment that you've just been into. And then from the top of this ridge to the north, straight up, all of the water from there would fall to the north into the Vaughan stream catchment. So essentially we have... For the Long Bay subdivision to go ahead, rainwater had to be treated on-road or at source to protect the local marine reserve it flows into. Now that requirement is part of the Auckland City's blueprint, the unitary plan. 
The subdivision's been designed to have rain gardens that can naturally filter water and slow down runoff during a big downpour. Most of our roads can have biofiltration, which means we can treat most of the road stormwater at source in these, in these biofiltration rain gardens, and we'll just have a look at what they look like now. So where you see a cutout in a kerb line like that, that's yep. an obvious sign for where that particular area of planting is working as a biofiltration. But where you have cutouts in these kerbs is essentially where we allow stormwater to flow through that kerb line and into these biofiltration areas so that water can be treated in these rain gardens. And essentially what these are, these rain gardens are built as as area where water can run into and filter through the media and drainage material in there and essentially the contaminants and nasties get filtered out in that material and then the clean water is um, a combination of taken up into the roots of the plants and also where you have bigger amounts of water, uh, it's, it's taken into the stormwater system. You can see and that's there and then that's piped into the secondary treatment areas which are the end of pipe wetlands so it's treated again before it's finally released into the receiving environment. Rain gardens like this one capture, slow down and purify water and they sit just between the road and the footpath where a grass verge might usually be and in this subdivision they're filled with irises and rushes. Water as it comes from the sky is generally pretty clean. But then as soon as it hits our urban environment, it picks up various different contaminants. So that might be hydrocarbons, heavy metals, those come from the roads. Uh, they can come off of roofs, if you have zinc roofs. And there's also pathogens that can come off as well. So uh, there's, uh, our indicators for those are microbial, uh, so like E. coli, enterococci. And each of those different pollutants has a different impact on our receiving environment. So the trick with most of our stormwater treatment is to not just control the quantity, but to also take out as many of those pollutants as we can before it goes into those receiving environments like the marine or the, um, the stream environment. Gretel Sillen-Roberts is the Principal in Engineering and Technical Services at Auckland Council. She headed up the production of the water-sensitive design manual. Auckland's Guide to Urban Planning that aims to cut down flooding and the destruction of ecosystems as land use intensifies. Dr Sillen Roberts says at Long Bay multiple devices in what's known as a treatment train are being used to slow down, cool down and purify water as it runs off roofs and roads. So the treatment train is a suite, if you like, of different devices that you can use to mitigate different pollutants at different stages in your catchment. So, for instance, um, in your house, uh, you have a roof and you have pervious and impervious areas. And uh, your source mitigation at that stage might be a rain tank or it might be a small rain garden uh, or it might be pervious paving in your driveway. And How does a rain tank help? Ah, rain tank is actually very useful because it will take uh, water from your roof and it will detain that water, so it'll uh, stop it from going into your receiving environment and it'll also provide you, um, if you have it hooked up, with a potable water supply, which means that you're not taking as much out of the potable supply system. So uh, a rain tank gives you both detention which is where you detain it and then release it slowly over time, and also retention, which is where you can use it on site. And there's actually a water tank in each of these houses. Okay. So as we walk along here, you'll be able to see that down the sides of these houses, you'll see rainwater tanks have been installed as an on-site mitigation. So that's your first stage of the, of the treatment suite. 
the next stage of your treatment suite is the kind of mid-catchment area where you'd be looking at these rain gardens here where runoff from the road goes into these rain gardens and it provides that retention and detention as well, as well as a bit of water quality treatment. And then at the end of your treatment suite, those big devices at the end of your catchment uh, are kind of like wetlands where you have uh, an ecological advantage, a social advantage and then primarily a huge water quality and quantity uh, device. In the past, developers would have drained swamps to create more land suitable for housing. Now they're engineering wetlands that were never there in the first place as part of their planning requirements. Gretel Sillen-Roberts says while the wetlands' primary purpose is to capture and clean large amounts of water, they also provide somewhere pretty to go for a walk or to feed the ducks. And for those selling the real estate, a water view to bump up the price. But how do you build resilience in your city when you don't have the opportunity to build from scratch? In Auckland's Mount Roskill, the idea from the Dutch water expert Henk Ovink of letting the water in is being taken up. So this creek is the Oakley Creek and the project is um, the Oakley Creek project to Angaawa between Richardson Road and Sandringham Road. Auckland Council's water programme manager Andrew Chin has brought me to an unloved part of Mount Roskill where shabby housing New Zealand houses back onto a narrow concreted stream. He wants to show me how the council's making room for the water. The area floods frequently, so it's been decided that the concrete channel that strangles the stream during heavy rains will be ripped out. This was an area that was developed, it was largely a swamp, back I think in the 1950s, 1940s, and they drained the swamp and they concrete lined the stream all the way through. Fortunately, being a swamp, there was a massive flooding problem almost immediately after they um, built the housing around down here. Housing New Zealand owned most of the housing stock in and around here. Mm -hmm. And as part of the issues about where Auckland can grow and intensify, this was one of the areas that Housing New Zealand identified, saying, look, there's a lot of opportunity here for us to both renew that housing stock if we can resolve the flooding problems. And so on the back of trying to resolve the flooding for the growth, we've re-engineered the stream channel to both make it more natural, more like a, its old watercourse. On the sides of the stream, so not in the area where the main permanent watercourse is, we've actually excavated out an awful lot of material to provide space for the floodwaters so that we then protect the housing. So it fixes flooding, rehabilitates the stream and enables growth. In the Netherlands, parks dug out to let water in have to double as recreational areas to make the best use of space. Andrew Chin hopes Oakley Creek will do the same by being transformed from a wasteland to a beautiful place locals can enjoy. People value these spaces that don't fill up with shopping trolleys and, and litter. So a lot of the design is to try and create that passive surveillance so that people feel safe when they come here. Uh, it's attractive and it looks good, so it's not only providing those environmental benefits, but the amenity side of it is just almost just as important, so people value it, and, and it doesn't look like a wasteland after it's finished. The project is costing Aucklanders $20 million. But what about New Zealand cities that aren't growing and don't have the funds to build their resilience against climate change? Yes, where we're standing now, we would have been sort of mid-shin up underwater um, during the 2015 in the flood. In South Dunedin, one of New Zealand's most flood-prone areas, 
The ideas being discussed about what to do range from raising the height a house can be built at to retreating from the coast completely and allowing the area to turn back into a swamp. This park and a number of the others in the area have flooded before. They are low-lying. They are below the level of the, the road, which means that, um, that they don't drain into the, into the pipe, into the stormwater network, which is actually fine for a park because eventually it just evaporates and obviously this is a better storage place for water than, than people's homes. The Ministry for the Environment's climate change projections suggest Otago will become wetter, particularly in winter and spring, with winter rainfall increasing by 4 to 10% in Dunedin by 2090. Extreme rainy days are also likely to happen more often and are already causing more frequent flooding. Dunedin City Council's Chief Executive Sue Bidrose says South Dunedin is less than 50 centimetres above sea level and the groundwater under it is rising and seeping into the land. We are noticing increasingly we're getting wet spots that, that don't dry out the way they used to. Um, some residents have reported trees with root, with root rot that are you know, dying because, of, because they stay waterlogged. So we're certainly aware that groundwater and rising groundwater is an issue that we're having to deal with. Uh, and we are starting to explore some of the options around that, have been for the last four or five years, just gradually starting to think, uh, you know, what might be going to happen and what should we be starting now. Dr Bidrose says some residents are still in denial that things will get much worse, and the council's been holding workshops to keep them informed and to find out what they think the solution should be. Some of the ideas that have been suggested have involved, um, we, we did a, a piece of work uh, about four or five years ago, looking at the idea of a wholesale um, sump in the ground, effectively, with drainage leading into it, and that we actively pump groundwater out, or stormwater, floodwater, um, rainwater out past the sand dunes or into the harbour, um, which in effect we do in bits of South Dunedin now anyway, and they are the drier parts of South Dunedin. So all of those things need to be in the mix for consideration. But retrofitting large areas of a city doesn't come cheap. So who will pay? We've got a third of the country's challenge if you're talking about houses that are less than 50 centimetres above sea level. So out of New Zealand's, what, 4 million people, 120,000 of us live here in the glorious city of Dunedin. Uh, That is why some of this is a central government issue. I've got 50,000 rating units, households, who simply can't afford to foot all of this bill on their own and the planning for it has to start now. Some of the early options have to start now. Optimising the current system has to start now. Exploring options for improved stormwater pumping has to start now. Um, and that's, uh, that's what we're doing at the moment. That doesn't mean all of those things have to be built in the next five years, but we do have to start the process of planning for them if we are responsible city stewards, if you like. And it's not just Dunedin wondering where the money's going to come from to make the drastic changes needed to protect our cities. Dave Cull is the Mayor of Dunedin and the President of Local Government New Zealand, the organisation which represents councils all over the country. The risk of flooding has obviously increased with climate change effects, so ongoing for all, all councils in the country, there's very few that aren't affected in some way. Those on the coast will be affected by sea level rise and inundation and coastal uh, erosion. Those inland will be affected uh, potentially by uh, river and uh, lake flows uh, increasing because of uh, more frequent and extreme weather events that come from climate change, and it's all water. So there you go. 
it's really right up there in terms of our consciousness of what our issues are confronting us. Dave Cull says with much of the country's flood protection infrastructure reaching the end of its life, climate change preparedness is top of mind for councils. Algen Z's doing a roadshow around, we're meeting with every council individually, we're asking about the individual council's priorities and interestingly they almost always align and we are hearing a lot, well what are we expected to do about climate change, what are our adaptation measures that we might need to take, how are we going to find the money to build the infrastructure or renew the infrastructure that we know is going to be needed, these are all big questions and they're coming up all over the country. Dave Cull says councils will need help from central government to foot the bill that could run into the billions. We don't believe that the current system of funding for local government, which is based on a very on just property tax effectively rates, uh, is sufficient to sustain the spending and investment required into the future pretty much in any council in the country. What we want is sustainable funding lines. Now, it may be a share of GST, it may be the ability to have local um, road taxes or petrol taxes or uh, income taxes or whatever. We just have to look around the world to see that there's a range of possibilities. But New Zealand is at one extreme end of the spectrum in terms of the proportion of tax money in general that is levied by local government to do a whole host of things compared with what's levied by central government. We're, we're right over at one end of the spectrum on that. And it, we, we need to move in towards the centre to enable what we believe is the inability to fund some of these things will be holding our communities back and our nation back in terms of its development. We live in a physically vulnerable place. More tough things are coming our way. We're not the only ones that are vulnerable and it seems that cities across the world are. Wellington's been looking internationally for funding to help it understand more about how to build city resilience. The capital is part of the 100 Resilient Cities program. It's run by the Rockefeller Foundation in the United States, which has handed out a million dollars to each city to help them figure out ways to become resilient to the physical, social and economic challenges that are a growing part of the 21st century. Councils themselves will pay for implementing the strategies and the infrastructure needed. The Ministry for the Environment's climate change projections suggest that for Wellington there'll be some increase in storm intensity and local wind extremes and thunderstorms are likely to occur more frequently. And intense heavy rainfall events will lead to more erosion and landslides. This is working out where the steep terrain is in the city. So we've taken a a satellite image, we've overlaid that with a a LIDAR image, which is a laser radar image of the city. Derek Baxter is the city engineer for Wellington. He says the hilly city's already feeling the effects of climate change and slips in particular are a big worry. So that enables us to look around the city and go, this road, this part of town is, is... potentially more likely to be impacted in a slip. Wellington City Council is trying to find out more about how much climate change is responsible for the huge number of slips that have fallen all over the city this year. We have recorded 400 significant slips and 600 plus minor ones. I think there's been more noticeable and public ones and a couple of really quite obvious and dramatic ones. So the big standouts would be um, the Nauronga Gorge, 
things that closed that for a day and then the one that more local people would be aware of is the Nyo Gorge which we had it closed for a, a number of weeks. We're still working through what those actual causes are. There's never one single cause. These are only the slips that have been reported to the council this year and Derek Baxter says many more that happened on private land go unrecorded. He says the council and GNS scientists are trying to understand how much is to do with earthquakes and how much comes down to extreme weather eroding and saturating hillsides. He's quick to correct assumptions though that a wetter than usual winter was to blame. At the moment, the, the thing we're focusing on is we actually had a really wet summer, and although it was, um, but it was then a, moderate, a pretty normal winter. So it wasn't that we had a particularly wet winter, it's that we actually didn't dry out that much in the summer. What that did, it meant that a lot of our slips that are prone to weather or have been opened up for some other reason have been more prone to damage. How much... Is climate change then contributing to Wellington's slip problem? The direct correlation's not quite there. It's sort of kind of a scientific hypothesis that we've got people working on and thinking on. One of the things that is happening with climate change, though, is we're getting the average rainfall is around about normal, but it's happening in more intense periods. So what we're getting is tighter events, much more intense rainfall. The council may look at banning development on south-facing slopes, which are more vulnerable to slips because they don't dry out easily. The city's already facing a range of climate change problems, including coastal inundation and having to pump floodwaters out where stormwater systems can't cope, especially when heavy rain combines with high tides. For Derek Baxter, being part of the 100 Resilient Cities is giving Wellington great ideas about how to future-proof itself. The really cool thing about the 100 Resilient Cities is there are partner cities all over the world facing similar types of challenges. So we've got Rotterdam as one of the 100 Resilient Cities. They've got a pretty substantial programme around sea level rise. New York City have got a really big one around post-superstorm Sandy, which caused a huge amount of storm surge and and flow into the city. And they've got a mixture of hard defences and mitigation and coping with adaptation around what's going to happen as the sea and the storm comes through. At the same time, it helps put New Zealand in perspective. For Dutch international water envoy Henk Ovink, building partnerships between countries and communities so they can share ideas is central to what he does. He says decision makers, under pressure in the wake of a disaster, often default to promises to begin rebuilding as soon as possible, rather than thinking more about what the best answer really is. We need better examples to deal with the future. A lot of these challenges are really wicked. Uh, And uh, we too often around the world still deal with these challenges with, you know, the solutions of the past. And as we've, you know, if we we go around the world and see the solutions of the past don't create a better future, most of the time they actually prevent that better future being created. So we need better examples uh, to change, but also to inspire eh? so people can understand, ah, there is a way forward. There is an opportunity for sustainability and resiliency when it comes to water. I'm Teresa Cowie and that's Insight for this week.
You can share and podcast this and other insights from rnz.co.nz forward slash insight or head to iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That programme was produced by me, Philippa Tolley, with technical production by Mark Chesterman. If you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insight rnz. Great to have you with us and thanks for listening.